Well, good afternoon. If you have your Bibles, would you turn uh, in them with me to Esther chapter 6, verse 14? We'll be beginning at the end of Esther, and we'll be continuing into chapter 7, or be the end of Esther 6, and continuing into chapter 7. Uh, Esther chapter 6, verse 14. And if you're there and you're able, would you please stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word? And if you remember last week, we left off. Haman is in conversation with his wife, his friends, and his wise men. And it says here, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even, the, even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the place or went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where, drinking, uh, the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Thank you. you may be seated. Before we begin, would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that you would speak to us today, God, as we seek to understand this passage, Lord, as we hear from your word. God, I pray that Jesus would be glorified in our worship today, even in the preaching of your word. God, I pray that you would be with each one of us, Lord, that as we hear from your word, that your spirit would Open our hearts and open our eyes to see the beauty of the salvation that is brought to us in your Son. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I remember when I was young, my parents would, every summer, bring us to a theme park. We would get season's passes, and every summer, on many weekends, we would go to a place called King's Dominion, an amusement park near my house. Now, that was horrible for me at first, because I was terribly afraid of roller coasters. And I remember my parents, in order to get me to like these roller coasters, 
would push me onto them, against my will, hoping that if I experienced it, I would enjoy it. But for about maybe three years or so, it didn't work. And I was on the roller coasters, terrified, screaming. But the problem was once I got on that roller coaster, I was no longer in control. Once I was on it, once that belt was fastened, I couldn't take it off, I couldn't jump up, or I couldn't jump off. I was completely at the mercy of the roller coaster. Here in this text, we find Haman in a very similar place. If you remember, if we look up there at chapter 6, verse 14, he's in a conversation. But then during his conversation, the eunuchs, they break in and they hurry him off to the party. It's almost like he's no longer in control. Things are taken out of his hands. Once he gets to this party, the enemy, Haman, is completely in the hands of the Lord. Now, as we look at this passage, we will see hints of the gospel. Not everything that we see in this passage is a one-to-one comparison with Christ and his work, but we see a structure of the gospel. This section here is really the climax of the story. If you remember when you were in English class, you learned about the structure of a good story, right? First, there's the exposition. You learn about the setting. You get a feel of who the characters are. It sort of introduces you into the story. Then there's the rising action in the conflict. So far in our story, we've seen Esther become the queen. We've seen disputes between Mordecai and Haman. We've seen the Jews be condemned to die, the conflict. But now this all brings us up to the climax, where the entire story changes, where all the roles are reversed. And here in this section, we see many hints of the gospel. Like I said, not one-to-one comparison in everything that we see, but certain structures. We see certain patterns of the gospel. And the first way that we see the structure of the gospel is that we see God with us. We will see first God with us, and then second, we will see God for us. So first, look with me again in verses 3 and 4 as we see God with us. It says there in verse 3, Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now it's been mentioned before that Esther in exile is much different than other Jews that we've seen in exile. If you remember Daniel, who was exiled to Babylon, he kept his Jewish distinctiveness even while he was in exile. He made no attempt really to hide who he was. Now, in the case of Esther, things were much different. Up to this point, she has kept her Jewish identity a secret. Now, in some cases, it might have been more obvious that Daniel was a Jew than it was for Esther. But we see that for Esther, there was no attempt to maintain her Jewishness. She has a Persian name, Esther, and she has a Jewish name, Hadassah. 
But up to this point, nobody knows her as Hadassah. For the most part, everybody knows her as Esther. But all of this changes in verses 3 and 4. Here, she reveals who she truly is to the king and to Haman. She reveals, or she says, Let my life be granted me for my request, for my request and my people for my request. She goes on to explain, if we have been sold, remember that Haman had promised to give the king money for the death of the Jews. Then she adds, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. She uses the exact same wording of the decree. There is no question who her people are. They know who she is talking about. Though before she was known as the Persian Queen Esther, now she becomes the Jewish girl Hadassah. And she does this to deliver her people. In order to deliver her people, she becomes one of them in order to mediate their deliverance. Now this is a pattern that we have seen elsewhere in Scripture. I think of Moses, the prince of Egypt. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Think of Moses and his dealings with Pharaoh. Moses identified with his people in order to mediate on their behalf. Did Moses have to identify with the Jews? Wouldn't it have been easier for him to maintain his position as an Egyptian and enjoy all of the riches and wonders that that brought to him? What about Esther? Sure, Mordecai may have told her that she wouldn't have escaped death in the palace, but perhaps she could have thought that maybe she could have. I mean, the king didn't know that she was a Jew. Haman didn't know that she was a Jew. Maybe she could have maintained her Persian identity and kept her Jewish identity a secret. But instead, she chooses to identify with her people and mediate their deliverance. And of course, we see this in the deliverance that is brought to us by Jesus. Now, of course, like I said, not everything when it comes to Esther is a one-to-one -one comparison. What we see Esther do and what we see Jesus do are not identical. But as we look at this thing that Esther did by identifying with her people and mediating for her people, we see a flavor of the gospel. We can see this gospel in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, when the prophet tells us, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we later learn means God with us. You see, the incarnation of the Son of God is when the Son of God humbled himself to become one of us, to identify with his church in order to mediate on their behalf. Imagine God in his perfect holiness looking on fallen man. He loves it. He wants to redeem it. He wants fellowship with his creation that has become filthy. But how does he bring it back to himself? How does he reconcile a fallen creation with their creator? 
to use an illustration that may be somewhat disgusting, but I think fitting. Think of a porta potty, one of those plastic, disgusting, portable bathrooms that you might have been to if you were at an outdoor um, fair or something like that. Probably one of the most disgusting things ever created. But imagine you go into that porta potty and it's hot, you're sweating, you're fumbling around, and a ring from your finger falls into the toilet. Well, what do you do? You want your ring back, right? It's important to you. But how would you go about getting your ring? Perhaps you would get a stick or a fishing hook and you would try to fish it out, staying as far away from the filth as you possibly could. You'd get it out, you would spray it off with a hose, and then maybe you would pick it up again. Perhaps that's how we would try to get a ring that fell into a porta potty. Well, when man fell, he became disgusting. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3 say, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, to see if there are any who seek after God. But what does God see when he looks at his fallen creation? The following verse says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. What does this word corrupt mean? Well, the King James translates this as being filthy. It's not only broken, but it's disgusting. It's something that is rotted away and is just almost disgusting to even touch, to look at. Well, when we think of God's holiness and we think of our sin and our corruption, really the comparison between our clean hands and a porta potty don't even compare. Our hands are far more close to the corruption of a porta potty compared to God's holiness and our sin. And yet, while our sin was a stench to God, the Bible says that while we were sinners, God loved us. He wanted us back. And he didn't seek to save us the way that we would seek to save our ring. He didn't keep his distance. Instead, God loved us in this way. He sent his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. If you were to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19, 19 through 21, these verses describe the rescue plan of God. In fact, if you're able, would you turn there with me so we can look at this together? It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. Looking at these verses, we see precisely how God reconciled his fallen creation to him. It says, In Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, what is it? He let down a ladder for us to climb up so that he wouldn't have to get his hands dirty? No, for our sake, he gave us the materials to wash ourselves so that he wouldn't have to get his hands dirty. No, that's not what it says. Notice the following section. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice that for our sake, God entered into his fallen creation. He became one of us in order to save us, bearing our filth upon himself, while at the same time remaining completely sinless and holy. He frees us from our punishment. Think of the Jews in the book of Esther. They have been condemned to die. They have been sentenced to die. And what does Esther do? Does she seek to make some sort of plan that keeps her hands clean, that sort of keeps her safe, while at the same time saves her people? No. Instead, we see that Esther identifies with her people in order to mediate on their behalf. And here we see a picture of the gospel in that while we were condemned, sentenced to die, God's Son became one of us in order to mediate on our behalf and deliver us. Again, not everything is a one-to-one comparison. I understand that. What I'm saying is that when we see what Esther did, we see an echo of the gospel. We can sort of taste a flavor of the gospel. This is a pattern of deliverance that we see in Esther and that we ultimately see in the deliverance brought to us by the Son of God. Now, not only do we see God with us, pictured in Esther and her people, but we also see God for us. Look again back in Esther, in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. Here, Esther has revealed the state of her, of her and her people. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Notice that Haman is on that roller coaster. Things are not in his control anymore. He might have thought they were before he came to this party. But very quickly, he was rushed off, brought here, and little did he know that no longer was he in control. We see that the king is furious and he goes outside. When he comes back in, Haman is falling on the couch where Esther is sitting. The king comes back and he says, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? After he says this, Haman is immediately arrested. Many commenters have said that when the king leaves this room, part of the reason he's so angry is that Haman has sort of deceived the king. Haman has forced his hand to do something that maybe he wouldn't have wanted to do if he knew all the information. Now, the king feels like he has to carry out the decree and kill his own wife. Haman, or the king comes back in and he sees Haman begging for forgiveness And he says, now will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? The word here, assault, in this context could mean to force yourself upon in the way that a man could force himself upon a woman. Now, the king may not be truly accusing Haman of this, as it would be sort of unfitting for the situation, but he is expressing his anger. Everybody in this room knows that the king is now horribly angry 
at Haman. Once he says this, the people immediately cover Haman's face and he's arrested. There's no doubt whose side the king is on now. A bag is placed over his head and he's taken out. This section then ends with verses 9 and 10. Then Herbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. You'll notice here one of the great themes of the book of Esther. And that theme is reversal. You can think of Queen Vashti and Esther having their roles reversed. Now Esther is the queen. We can think of Haman and Mordecai before when Haman is the one who is praised. And then there's a reversal. Haman then has to parade Mordecai around. And now we see an even greater reversal. You'll notice here that the gallows that were made for Mordecai by Haman are now Haman's gallows. Not only did Esther identify with her people, but she also fought for her people. She took their side, and with her influence, she brought an end to Haman. Imagine if you were a Jew, and you were sentenced to, to die, and you find out that the queen is a Jew. And then you find out not only is the queen a Jew, but the queen is also on your side. Wouldn't that sort of change the way that you feel about your predicament? You would take hope in that, in that before I thought that I had no hope, that I was sentenced to die, but now there's someone in power who can fight for me. The queen is a Jew like me, and the queen is going against my enemy. But we have a greater comfort against our enemy. Psalm 118 verse 6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. One of the greatest aspects of the gospel is that while our enemy was posed against us, God came to our side and he fought for us. It's the critique of the common David and Goliath narrative that we all know so well. Right? When we think of David and Goliath, if I were to ask you, who is David? I think many of us would say, not us. Right? We would say, who is David? David is Jesus. Jesus is the one who fights for us. We are the Israelites who can't take on Goliath. And David is Jesus who fights our enemy for us. Now, who is our enemy? Who is the ultimate enemy of God's people? Who is the enemy that Christ has delivered us from? Well, we find him in the early chapters of Genesis. Our enemy is the serpent. The Bible gives many titles to this enemy. He is called the devil, meaning slanderer. He is called Satan, meaning the accuser. Notice these titles as they describe our enemy. He seeks to slander and he seeks to accuse humanity. He went to mankind in the garden, and he lied to them. He went to them, and he tempted them, and they fell. And now he holds their sins up to God, and he says to God, look at their sins. 
you know what you have to do, you know what your justice demands, you must punish them. And the reality is that at first glance, it seems that he has a really good case. He's the accuser, and the people that he's accusing are absolutely guilty. There's nothing we can do about that. We have an accuser, he's our enemy, and at first glance, it seems that he has a really good case. But there in the garden, as the serpent was there, God gave gospel to humanity. If we were to go back in Genesis 3.15, we would see God saying, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, good news was given to mankind in the garden. From the seed of the woman, there will be a deliverer. And we know who that deliverer is now. He is God, identified with his people by becoming the seed of the woman. And he is God who delivered his people by fighting for them. Now, how did the Son of God fight for us? How did Jesus go against the devil? What did that battle look like? Well, if we were to turn to Colossians chapter 2 and look at verse 15, it speaks of Christ disarming the rulers in authority and, sp- and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them. These demonic rulers and authorities, how did Jesus defeat them? How does the cross bring victory over our, over our enemies? And if you have your Bibles with you, could you turn there with me as we look at Colossians chapter 2? We can see the battle between Jesus, our deliverer, and Satan, our enemy. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. It says, In you, us, who are dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it, to the cross, disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them. Remember, Satan is the accuser. He has a record of sin in his hand. He goes to the judge of all the earth with our record of debt, and he has a pretty good case when he presents it to the judge. But In the cross, God replies, that record is void. That one weapon that Satan has against humanity, when Jesus goes to the cross and when he takes our sins and he nails them to the cross, Satan is left with no more weapons. In fact, the Son of God defeats Satan by disarming him of his weapon. Remember that the sting of death is sin. And the power of death, and the power of sin, is the law. But if our sin, and if the condemnation of the law are done away with on the cross, then thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, like the Jews in our passage, death hangs over our head. An enemy, 
a foe is against us. And that enemy is far out of our reach. Like the Jews in Esther, they couldn't go against Haman. They, have, they had no way of going against Haman and the king and the decree that was over their heads. But although they had a foe, and although they had an enemy, they also had a deliverer. And what I want to tell you is that you truly do have an enemy. You truly do have a foe. There is someone who knows your sins and he's not on your side. That enemy is your accuser. It is Satan, the serpent in the garden. He is the enemy of humanity. And he has your sins and he presents them to God. But I am also here to tell you that there is also a deliverer. There is a redeemer. There is a hero who will come to your side and fight for you. And his name is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus went to battle with Satan on the cross. And if you place your trust in him, if you look to him as your deliverer, then on that cross, he will cancel out your debt of sin. He will disarm your enemy, that enemy who wants to lay hold on your soul and use your sins as a weapon. The Son of God defeats for you. And if you place your trust in him, then your record of sin and your debt will be completely met in him, thus disarming your enemy and giving you the victory in Jesus Christ. I want you to look once again at the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. You can find it in your scripture reading section of your bulletin if you'd like. It says there, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, Likewise, partook of the same things, meaning that he became flesh and blood like us, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, if you're here with us today, perhaps you're not a believer. Perhaps you don't know Christ as your Savior. I want to remind you that you have an enemy. Even if you don't see your enemy, at least you can look forward into your life and know that death is coming. There is a sentence on humanity. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And if you don't have a deliverer, then that enemy is far out of your reach. I encourage you, as the Apostle Paul said earlier, as an ambassador of Christ, I implore you to be reconciled to God. You see, God has made a way for you to be reconciled to him. The Son of God became man. He didn't leave man in his ruin, but instead he wanted to reconcile man to God. That creation that fell and became dirty, he loved it. And he wants to redeem it. And to do so, 
he identifies with his creation and he fights for it. And for those of you who are believers, who do know Christ as Savior, I want you not to forget that you have an enemy who was defeated in Christ. I think many times when we think of Christ going to the cross, we forget about our enemy. It's true that when Christ went to the cross, he defeated our sin and he saved us from the wrath of God. But who was it who was wielding the wrath of God against us? It wasn't the father who sent his son to save us. The one who wields the wrath of God against humanity is Satan. He is our enemy. I think sometimes when we think of the cross, I think we get the wrong idea that Jesus went to battle against the Father. That's not what happened on the cross. We have the false idea of God when we think that the Father was angry at us and the Son calmed him down on the cross. As if the Father was our enemy and Jesus went to battle against him. But that's not how it is. Satan is our enemy. Satan holds our sins up to the Father and he accuses us. But Christian, you have a deliverer. Satan has been defeated by Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross and he took your sins upon himself, he defeated Satan by disarming him. And now he has opened the way for us to be with him and the Father. So Christian, I want to encourage you. And for those who are not Christians, I want to call to you to be reconciled to God so that you can know this deliverer who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Father, God, I pray that if there are any here, Lord, who do not know you, Lord, who do not know your Son as Savior, God, I ask that you would reveal to them how much they need you. And Lord, we thank you for sending us a deliverer. God, thank you so much for sending us a Savior. Help us now to trust him and to look to him all the days of our life until you call us home. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.